Well, I want to consider with you today Psalm 137. And I'm sure you are aware of the context and know well the context of this psalm. The people of God have been removed from the promised land because of their sins. Northern Israel was, first of all, taken captive by the Assyrian force. The southern kingdom of Judah, eventually it too succumbed. Have we not learned the lesson of her apostatizing northern brethren? And had succumbed to the forces of the Babylonian Empire. And it was then a long and tedious and terrifying march from Judah all the way back to Babylon. And the people, scared and stunned as they are, are barely able to take in their catastrophe. And they are looking around themselves at the alien scenery of Chaldea. And that they no doubt slump down to a stop by the rivers of that land and fall down exhausted. Tears are streaming from their faces. What have they done? So far away. So lost. So lost and far away. And so the psalm is set in that context. And there are five points to work through this morning from the psalm. First of all, recognizing our new environment. Recognizing our new environment is our first point. And so as the sad caravan of captives entered wearily into the homeland of their conquerors, they could not fail to notice the mighty rivers of that land. The Tigris and the Euphrates rivers are names that are well known to us, but there was also the river Uli and the river Kinnah. And yet they seemed to match the mighty torrents of these rivers with their own tears as they broke down and wept by the rivers of Babylon when they remembered Zion. And tears flowed freely from their eyes in the sorrow and the grief of what had come upon them. And this is a question for us to face up to. How do we deal with this crisis? What should we be feeling in our own uh, temporary trust, but exile nonetheless from the public gatherings for worship? What should we be experiencing in our hearts? We could feel stoic, perhaps, and simply determined to carry on as best we can with that stiff upper lip, make the best of it, matter-of-fact sort of approach. But friends, we need to realize and take in our surroundings. We need to understand this new context. Look at where we are. I'm talking into a camera. We're forced to meet at a distance. Perhaps some of you, not even a part of this congregation, but this is how you're able to join in in the worship of God. Friends, it's horrible preaching to a virtually empty building here. Not any pleasant or enjoyable of itself. We've been brought to this. We've been forced into this by circumstances beyond our control. We must surely have some biblical response to it. We must search our scriptures to understand how are we meant to behave in this circumstance. And surely then, if they could weep there in Babylon, will we not weep over this too? 
But we not grieve for our loss. Look at the, the progress and pattern of this psalm. First, they take note of where they are. By the rivers of Babylon. That's not the Jordan River there. That's not the Brook Terrace. Not the Sea of Galilee. As is alien territory. This is not home. This is not science. And surely for the people of God in these strange circumstances there must be a taking stop, a stock, a noticing of where we are. We are exiled from the meeting house. And that means something. That's not just a nothing in the context of what's happening. We who, who believe in the overruling providence of God, the foreordaining of all things whatsoever comes to pass, we have to notice it when this is taken from us. It is not just one of those things. It is not persecution that has driven us to this. But it has happened. How do we respond? Well, notice first, they sat down by the rivers of Babylon. That is, they settled down. This was to be their home for the next two and a bit generations, 70 years. And Jeremiah told them not to listen to the false prophet who said, it will soon be over, everything will be back to normal, don't worry. Jeremiah told them, settle, marry, work, pray for your rulers. They were to accept their lot and they were to bow before this hardest of providences. And so too for us. Friends, we are not to kick against the pricks in this situation. We are not to grumble and to strain at the yoke that has been imposed upon us. God knows why we are here in this situation. Settle into it for the time being. Sit down by the rivers of Babylon. And like the exile, it will pass. But like the exile, God has his own purpose for his own people in it. We will wait to see what that purpose will be, sir. But when God changed the geography, is sending us to Nineveh, it's not the time to be checking the ferry timetable for passage. And so having first arrived, then they sat down, and then they went. They broke down. And then finally got there, this tedious journey, they just, it overwhelmed them. You can imagine these people simply numbed as they were making the journey, unable to take it in. Is this real? Is this really happening to us? The calamity of our captivity. And it seems to have been the reality of life in exile that finally turns on the path as well and opens the floodgates to their tears. And I think they were right to be in tears. Can you imagine such an event without tears? Can you imagine that people being taken away from their homeland, everything they understood, especially the people of God who were given the land by promise and exiled far away? Can you imagine there being no tears? Can you imagine if they'd simply looked around and shrugged their shoulders and got onward and put down roots and moved on? What kind of a witness to the Babylonians would that have been? Well, look at these. 
Jewish people. Eh? It is much care for their own land. They're quite happy. They'll be happier here. Must have been a miserable place. Their God can't have done much for them. Had no care for their own temple, for their own worship. They're happy enough without it. Look at them. It's as easy as anything just to move on. And that question has to be faced. Friend, are you perfectly happy to do church like this? Are you simply adapting as things go? Carrying on as best you can with no tears in your eyes? Will we weep nothing for what we have lost? That is a question for us all, children. The exiles grieved. It was a sore loss for them. And look at the focus of their sorrow. What was that? When we remembered Zion. Zion was the ancient name of the capital city, Jerusalem in general, yes, but it came to be associated especially with the temple and with the worship of God. And you notice it was the memory of Zion. That was the grounds for the weeping of the exiles. That is, it was the loss of Zion. It was the loss of the public worship of God. They understood that as their greatest catastrophe, to lose the one place in the whole world where the true God of heaven was worshipped. God wasn't worshipped in Babylon or in Assyria or in Rome or in Greece or in Europe or in Africa or in America or in Asia. He was worshipped in one place. The God who made the heavens and the earth. There was only one place in all the world where he was worshipped, where he was praised, where he was sought and where he was known. And now it was a heap of ruins. And they wept when they remembered Zion. And this was surely the essence of their loss. And that's what hurt their hearts the most. And it ought to be for us, surely, the same. Indeed, all the more so. Now, they had suffered greatly, far more than we have suffered. For months they had been deceived. Desperately hungry. Thousands had died. Their houses were ruined. Their crops devastated. Their lands ransacked. Their cities and villages razed to the ground. Their families dispersed to all different parts of the empire. Their civilization and culture lost. And yet it was the thought of the house of God being left empty. Being bereft of worshippers. Of there being no one there to offer the sacrifices and to sing the praise. That broke their hearts. We wept when we remembered Zion. And amidst all the sacrifices that we have been asked to make right now, with the curtailing certainly of our freedoms, of our liberties, the confining of our persons, the collapse of our economy, yet it must be for the people of God, at least, the greatest deprivation must be the enforced forsaking of the house of God for worship. 
There's a stuff that put us all in these things. But save your deepest sighs and your heaviest tears for Zion. The world must not see us content having no church to attend. They must not see us thinking it's all We should be deeply unsettled by this, even over and above everything else combined. The church has closed its doors. Secondly, resisting the temptation to make light of it all. In the next scene of the psalm, the exiles stubbornly refuse to entertain their captors hanging up their hearts on the weeping willows of Babylon that lined the banks of these rivers that they were sat down next to. And this is the way of the world in such times as this. Let us make light of things. Let us try to get through it all as best we can, not thinking about how serious, how bad it is. Let us get through it by entertainment, by levity, by triviality. And they want the church to come and link arms with them and join in with them. And let's all be merry together. They want the church to get away from the sadness of their loss. And their remedy is, oh, we'll, we'll take some of things with, you, with us. We'll let you join in. Come and sing us some of the songs of Zion. And they want us to pluck out some bits of our worship that they might choose. And so often it will be our music. And we have seen this happening already with the move to make our psalm singing into some sort of curiosity, especially in the Gaelic language, a mere cultural event. A celebration of culture instead of the worship of the holy God of heaven torn out of its context. And it's not just a particular application of context. One of the old Divine for this comes in the Psalms. Plummer says, We may not sing songs or do anything else in the worship of God at the bidding of or for the gratification of carnal men. That there is this movement and we should anticipate it and be ready against it. And believers who will not join in with the lightness that the world will want us to have. And believers who will not enter into the frivolity and the triviality of the things that are not trivial. They will be pilloried. There's a tremendous pluck about these captives. You've got to admire this steadfastness. It's perhaps the beginning of a spiritual recovery for these souls who had been desperately backslidden. It's what led to the exile. They're defeated. This is a, a, a tribe of broken men and women and children. They're in chains. They're hundreds of miles from anything that is a semblance of home or familiarity. And their tormenting captors require a song from them. So they can make merry, and no doubt that they can not. And these captives 
They haven't got a single weapon between them. They refuse. They refuse. And I love that holy refusal in this psalm. Captors have a tendency of getting what they want. It's the nature of it. But here the Jews hang up their hearts in protest and they refuse. They refuse to be intimidated into deriding the worship of God or trivializing the worship of God. They refuse. They know their guilt. They know they had taken it for granted when the worship was there, when they could go to the temple. They know how often they've neglected it and abused it. And they won't do it anymore. And across the centuries, as has been since that time, I think then we should thank our Jewish forefathers for their pluck in not giving in to the demands of the world for lightness at such a time as this. And that is our baton to take up in such a time as this. What will our worship become in these strange, strange times? Will it become a parody? Will it become a plaything? Will it become a party piece of the world brought out for the amusement of the lords and the ladies? Notice also the basis of their refusal in verse 4. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? They recognize this is not the time or the place. This is an alien idea. The Lord's song in a strange land? Now that's not at all the, the, the intent and spirit of the psalm is not at all to say that they never sang psalms during the exile. I'm sure they often did. The idea is not that the psalms themselves would be profaned by being sung by Jews in worship. No. The idea is that an expression of religious joy and happiness such as they have been asked to give would be utterly misplaced and out of keeping with the reality of their circumstances. And they are determined not to make light of things, not to in any way countenance such an approach. And they were right. And one of the comments again says, When called to mourning, let us not go dancing. It is both folly and wickedness to harden ourselves in stoicism under our sorrows. Folly and wickedness. We may sing the Lord's song in these circumstances. But we sing them with a tear in our eyes and grief in our heart. And we will not take them out of context nor rip them out of worship to make these things a plaything of the world. Keep in mind always, dear friends, that what we are faced with in these days is not normal. However much we may get used to this, you have to get used to it. Tuck it away in your mind and hold on to it dearly. This is not normality. This is not how things should be. This is not how we should get accustomed to this act. This is a strange land. And we long to sing the songs of Zion where they belong, best of all, in the house of God. Thirdly, resolving to keep alive the memory of worship. I want us to look at this holy resolution of the captives 
as a vow to maintain inviolate the memory of the worship of God in Jerusalem. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. A Jerusalem, it does take in their memory, I'm sure, of the whole land. They went all this Jerusalemite tour in the captivity. But again, the particular focus on Jerusalem is because that is where the worship of God was centered. Jehovah was a meeting with them in this tabernacle. And it was gone. And it is the spirit of the exiles' hearts that they wish to keep unspoiled in their bosoms. They want to, to keep it as a great treasure, this memory of worship. This must endure. This must be passed on. This must outlast them. They might die in exile. Many of them did. But there must be this memory of the worship of God of how it was done in order to pass it on to those who will return, those who will take it up again. They need to know our children born to this land that were thinking in Babylon must be told about the worship of God in Jerusalem so that when we get to go back, we can take it up as we ought to. Not with a caricature of the worship, not with a adaptation of the worship, not with the importation of Babylonian ideas into the worship, but as it is. And notice what they are vowing in relation to that my right hand forget her tongue, her cunning, my tongue cleaves the roof of her of my mouth. The right hand and the tongue, the right hand to strum the heart and the tongue to sing the songs of Zion. They're still responding, you see, to the threats and the leaning upon them by their enemies, by their captors. But they would sooner lose their right hand. They would sooner have their tongue useless than acquiesce in the demands of the heathen. And they know what will happen, you see, if they start down this path of adapting the worship of God, changing, twisting, if now they begin, as they arrive in Babylon, to wrench the songs of Zion from their proper context of worship, they will corrupt the whole of the worship in no time, and there will be nothing left when they ever get back to their land to begin again the worship of God. No, friends, they knew they had to put under lock and key in their memories this precious gift the way of the worship of God. They had to protect it. They had to hold fast to it. So that when they would go to it again, when they would take it out of the cabinet of their heart, it would not be damaged. And it would be used again freely when the exile was over. So that you see, when they would go again, and the silence enforced upon them was done, 
what they would take out would not be a twisted parody of itself. Had to still be the worship of God. And friends, I think this also is very relevant to us in this time. Humble yourself in this. In a day of humiliation, say it. Humble yourself by remembering Zion. This is only just the first Sabbath from his company. We don't know how many of them will be. Say it, maybe not many, but we don't know. Just one week ago, many of us were still able to meet. Two weeks ago, the full congregation met. Three weeks ago, our community was with us. How quickly things move. But remember this. Remember the meetings. Remember the true practice and spirit of worship. Remember the preparation before you ever set foot in the house. Go over it in your mind. Relish every detail. Store it up so that it will be there when you need it. Go over it and over it and fix it in your memory. It is a fixed remembering they're doing. Remember how you come in the door with anticipation. Remember the greeting from the office bearers at the door. Remember the offering you put in the place. Remember the, the beginning of the worship with the call to worship. Let us worship God. Remember the opening of the Psalms. Remember the presenters as they perform the leading of the place. Remember the prayers offered in public for all the burdens of our hearts, for our young, for our old, for our needy, for our spirit, for our communities, for jobs, for revival, for reformation. Remember the word that as is read. Remember the studies that we've conducted. Remember the preaching of that word in all its shades and times and seasons. Remember the blessing of the Lord pronounced upon us in the benediction. Remember these things. Forget them not. Remember the calm stillness before the worship begins when you come and you sit a few minutes before we begin. Remember the fellowship at the door as you leave, hanging around at the, the porch area talking. Don't just think that we can be in exile as it were from all of that for weeks or months or who knows. Don't just think we can be away from it and whenever it comes back, we just pick up as if we had never been away. It doesn't work that. We, uh, you and I, we have to treasure it this night. We have to lavish attention upon it. We have to revisit it in our minds that it becomes a fixed memory, clear. Not a fading one. We have to preserve it. We have to think of it. We have to yearn after it again. Make this a resolution. Make this, friends, I would say, even a personal covenant with God. Covenant with God on this matter. And say to him, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. And notice the priority of it all. The end of verse 6. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief 
joy. Because that's the place Jerusalem had for them in the exile. This is how they experienced it. And let us take care to give that same place to worship in our strange time. There's lots of things that we're missing. We're missing contact with people. We're missing being able to get out to do our business. We're missing going to work. We're missing extended family who are not under our own roof. We're missing even the physical contact of a hug from a friend. There's plenty that we are experiencing just now that is strange. But set your heart above all these things on a desire for the restoration of the public worship of God. the forgetting of the public worship of God, the downplaying of the worship of God, the taking for granted of the worship of God is a great sin and is one that the Lord's people sadly do commit. Like all the sins of the people, it's one therefore that had been borne by the Saviour. Let my right hand forget its coming, lose its strength. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. These are the, the implications of like the curses we bring upon ourselves if we do forget the worship. And these are the things that Christ himself experienced upon the cross because he was bearing the curse of his people. In the 22nd Psalm he says in verse 15, My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaveth to my jaw. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. He experienced the curses brought upon his people for the sake of their failure to worship. But that does not bring us to humble ourselves before the Lord. Then we are in a poor spiritual condition. Why did the Saviour know these things? His strength dried, his tongue clean, his death. Well, for the sins of his people, yes, but particularly for this thing, the sins of the neglect of the priority of the worship of God. Friends, let us set our hearts indeed upon this as the great hope of our souls in these strange times, the restoration of public worship. Let that be the greatest good that we aim for. The priority for our land is to have the public worship of God restored again. That above all will be our great delight. Whenever the Lord is pleased to open the door to our church again, oh well, if we have treasured the worship, then we will come in with great joy. But if we have not, we will be dragging our feet. We will be reluctant. We will be comfortable in our home. We will say, I can just join in 
by YouTube again. And we were forgotten. The preciousness of worshiping the Lord. Fourthly, remembering that some want worship to end. Remembering that some want worship to end. The latter part of this psalm is difficult, and it has often been a case of a cause of great perplexity for the Lord's people, but I don't want to avoid it. And you can see there that it addresses in verse 7, first of all, the Edomites. And these enemies of the people of God were all but dancing on the grave of the temple. Raise, raise it, they say. Encouraging the Babylonians to destroy everything. And in particular, Jerusalem, the seat of the worship of God. The Edomites are the cheerleaders of the destruction of the public worship of the only true God. That's who these people are. And we need to be alert enough, friends, and discerning enough to notice that in this crisis, the Edomites are still with us. There are those who were desperate for the church to stop her services. It was for them the very first thing that should go. It was the most dispensable thing, the most obvious thing to dispense with. The thing that caused no loss. It was to them an unnecessary risk. And their bitterness for those who clung on to public worship whilst they could was evident. And their glee, now that public worship and public gathering for worship at least, has been lost, is equally evident. And the taunts of the Edomites, though echoing in the minds and in the memories of the children of Zion in exile. And they couldn't just ignore it, and they couldn't forget their cries of delight. Raise, raise it to the ground. Now what is the response of the children of Israel in exile as a result of this? What do they say about it? They plead with their Lord to remember the Edomites for their wickedness. They plead with the Lord to not forget what these Edomites had done in Jerusalem's day, in the day of Jerusalem's conquest and weakness, they plead with the Lord not to forget how the Edomites had taken advantage and so we might say, well, that was their fear, and the answer to their fear is equally evident because. There are no Edomites of natural generation at least in the world today. There are none. No one can point to a single surviving Edomite. They are gone because God remembered what they did. Now it was God's to do 
not for the exiles to overly worry themselves over. And so they bring it to the Lord and they ask the Lord to remember what they had done. And they left it with him. And so, let us remember that there are those in such extremity who want the worship of God to end. What should we do? We should ask the Lord in his wisdom to remember what they have done. But then we come to the very final section of the psalm, which is even more vexing. How do we deal with verse 8 and 9? So we come to our fifth and final point. The reward of those who destroy the worship of God. Now I want to notice, first of all, verse 8 and 9 is not the outpouring of some personal vendetta or personal hatred or mere spirit of vengeance. It is not that. Because if you listen carefully in verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed? Notice that way it is put. The fall of Babylon, the destruction of Babylon, was something that the exiles had already been told was going to happen. And they had been told this in the words of the prophets before the fall of Jerusalem had even occurred. And now in exile they remember this and they understand this that the Babylonians themselves will fall. And you can find such prophecies, certainly in Jeremiah, repeatedly. But in fact, the closest prophecy relating to uh, this passage comes not in Jeremiah, who is known as the leading prophet, rather tone of solemnity throughout, but it comes instead in Isaiah. You listen to Isaiah chapter 13. I'm going to read just three verses from verse 17. Isaiah 13 at verse 17. Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver. And as for gold, they shall not delight in it. This is stirring up the Medes against the Babylonians, the Medo Persian Empire. Their bows also shall dash the young men to pieces. And they shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice this language. They shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes shall not spare the children. So we come to the reward of those who destroy the worship of God. And so Psalm 137 is not the Israelites in exile and a spirit of bitterness calling for a new curse. It is a call based upon what has already been revealed to them. And they're asking God to hasten the day that his word will be fulfilled. It is certainly violent language of itself. But it is in keeping with the revealed will of God and therefore it was prayed and was right to have been prayed and would have been wrong not to have prayed. To have not sought to bring the revealed will of God and prayer to God, that is a sin. And we might struggle with that, certainly, but these are the facts. This was a revealed truth. And the point is, alarmingly clear 
those who hope to see an end of true worship, and those who attack the worship of God, particularly in the day of the weakness of the church, they will be destroyed. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed. This is the new subtitle of Babylon. Babylon, who art to be destroyed. She is living on borrowed time. And so it is, dear friends, in our day. And we hereby issue a warning to all those who in their plots and in their schemes intend to use this shutdown to devastate the true worship of the true God. You are those who will be destroyed. There are those in our own land who not only hope but intend this crisis to be a watershed moment that breaks the habit of church going across the nation in large numbers. They sit in Babylon's chair and wear her clothes and they are in grave danger of experiencing her destruction. Now there's something just the same conclusion there. This sounds surprisingly does not detail out the sins of the people of God that led to the exile. The sins that led to the, the silencing of the house of God in the first place. But in no way should that omission be taken as showing that the exiles didn't recognize their own sins, their own folly, that they weren't bothered by these things. Instead, the psalm throughout is full of sorrow and regret. It is full of humility under the hand of God, a kind of a, a latent repentance that is throughout the psalm. And surely the tears of verse 1 are tears of repentance too. And surely the memories of Zion that they have and the uh, yearning after worship, surely these memories include not only how things ought to have been done, but how they had failed to do them. And their sorrow at it. And surely the resolve of verses 5 and 6, these resolutions are promises never to take the worship of God for granted again. And surely even, friends, the burning zeal at the end of the psalm is an admission of the failure of zeal that they had for the worship of God before. And all this they used their enforced exile well. And it bred in them, but in many at least, a zeal for and passion after the return to the worship of God. Well, let us use this time in the same way. Let us use this time in a like manner. And let us rehearse and confess the many ways we have failed to appreciate the liberty we had to meet in this building and worship here freely and commit yourself before God never again to count his holy worship as a small thing. And may God have mercy upon you. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we come to thee again, 
We do desire that thou wouldst bless. Oh, blessed God, that thou wouldst bless uh, this strange providence to us, that we might bow under thine hand in it, that we might search our hearts and put out the leaven of sin that is within us, that we might cleave to the worship of God above all and yearn for its return. Grant us, O Lord, that the doors of this house might soon again be opened, and that the enemies of the cause of Christ might be put to shame. And all oh, have mercy upon us in such times. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing now in English in Psalm number 51. Psalm number 51. And we're singing here the first uh, seven verses.